Oh, hi, Mark. Tearing me apart, Lisa. Oh, hi, Mark. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Trevor. Oh, hi, oh. Scotty. <laughs> oh, man. Folks, it is a pl- I'm telling you. I- abjectly horrible. Well, folks, it is a pleasure to be with you on Rearview Movies. I am Scotty Williams, and uh, it is a genuine joy to look back on old films with new eyes with you, all the listeners, and, of course, my two amazing co-pilots, my gorgeous, beautiful wife, Heather Williams, and the man who is also good-looking uh, in a much more platonic way, Trevor Kirkendall. <laughs> Are both of you yeah. doing well today? I'm doing, doing great. Well. Doing well, sir, yes. It's been a hot minute since we were able to to get to recording, and honestly, I do think the subject of the film, the subject of this story, I think, has a basis on that, right? Because we we had a couple of missed uh, missed shots trying to get this recorded, right? Yeah, some uh, hiccups in scheduling there for a little bit, but um, maybe it was also due to the fact that it was like, dude, I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we had waited long enough, Heather and I pointed out we would have had to see it again to talk oh, about it yeah. again. Oh, so, yeah, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, no, yeah, one, but once uh, is enough. Once, yeah. yeah, yeah, for for good, I would say, not even a subscription service, just once. Yeah. yeah. But for those of you who are are very good at reading the show notes, you know we're going to be talking about a double header this month. We're talking about the Room and the Disaster Artist, two films focusing on the Mercurial and mysterious existence of the man, the myth, the legend, known as Tommy Wiseau. But before we get into that wonderful, wonderful room full of spoons, uh, let's discuss some other things going on. Trevor, what's going on with you in the movie industry? Man, nothing. I've been so busy that I've not been able to really get out at all. So that's not good. It's not like me to not get to the movie theaters, but um, yeah, it's been a busy past couple weeks. So it's... uh... Nothing's really happened there. Mm -hmm. Well, and we talked about a lot of the films in the previous month that had been coming out. So there wasn't a whole lot of new things to discuss. We said Blue Beetle wasn't going to do very good. It did not do very good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the the next big one that's coming is probably the Scorsese Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm -hmm. Um, So that'll be out soon. And I'm sure that will be the talk of the town for a while, just as uh, Barbenheimer was back in July. This will probably be, no, it won't be anywhere near that. Everybody came out of those being like, oh, we got some best picture nominees out of these two. And yeah, I think we're looking at that probably being the case. Now we're going to get this one that had a lot of um, hype coming out of a can back in May. Everyone's going to get a chance to see it and we'll finally get a chance to see if it's uh, lived up to the hype. But with uh, with Marty, it always does. So mm-hmm. I'd, uh, be surprised if it was anything but amazing. Oh, the early trailers make it look like it is going to be quite good, I would say. I, I would mm-hmm. definitely agree with that statement. Since we're talking about the topic of the room in this particular episode, I thought it was kind of fun to touch on a topic of some controversy, which is number one, cult classic films. And number two, this idea that a movie can be so bad it's good. We're going to touch on that so much because there's this existential question surrounding this movie. Is it a good movie? Is it a bad movie? Is it a so bad it's good movie? What exactly is it? But uh, before we get too much into that, um, Heather, let me ask you, what do you think separates a good movie from a bad movie forget good bad what separates a good movie from a bad movie uh the acting and the writing right i mean if if the writing is good the conversation is going to be good in the film and and it's got to have a good plot a bad movie is going to have a crappy plot the writing is terrible the lines are delivered poorly the actors don't seem to want to be there um that's what i think and now, Trevor, we've discussed the topic a little bit, but I remember for you, Cardinal said of a movie is if it's boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that, too. I mean, Heather's right. It all starts with writing. 
I mean, if the script is really bad, there's no way that anybody can really direct their way out of that or act their way out of that. So it really starts there. I mean, there's been there's been really well received screenplays written before that have turned out to be really terrible once they get realized for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too into it, but um, there's a something they call out in Hollywood every year. They call it the blacklist. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a list that's voted on by producers and managers and agents, among others, I think, that uh, it's the best non-produced screenplays floating around in Hollywood. And the purpose of this is to kind of give them a little bit of a boost and maybe somebody will decide to act on it or decide to move on it or whatever. Every now and again, there'll be something on there. It's like, oh, wow, you know, you look back on it and say, wow, that movie was on the blacklist. And thanks to the blacklist, it ended up being something that we could get a chance to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually they're pretty good. But one script a bunch of years ago, I don't even know how long ago it was now, maybe 10 years ago, one movie that topped it was a science fiction movie called Passengers that wasn't made yet. And after it topped the blacklist, it got a lot of hype and everybody was saying this is an incredible screenplay, like Mm -hmm. this is going to be really, really good. And then they cast Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence in it and everybody thought it was going to just be great and then it came out and it sucked. Mm -hmm. So that shows you, I think, that the script can be good and if you don't have the right people in place it's not going to be anything worthy of anything (laughs) but uh you know if it's bad to begin with then really there's there's no saving it and you can look at the the star wars prequel trilogy for that one because those scripts aren't worth the paper they're printed on they're not all that good maybe the third one's pretty good but the first one's not good the second one is atrocious it's all in that writing and it's just terrible, just terrible. Mm -hmm. Well, and even a few months back, we talked about a film that I think we all agreed was an average to even subpar script that was elevated by great performances, right? That was something's got to give. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was those, it was those two people starring in it that made that script out to be something more than it was, but you know, jumping into it, uh, there's a, there's really not much to save in terms of this film and the script and everything that was given to them. Uh, so uh, Trevor, let's jump right into it. Give us some of the critical information. Uh, let's start with the room. Some of that critical info. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll start with the room. We'll talk about that and then we'll jump into the other one, which is the only reason we're doing it is to cleanse the palate, I guess. <laughs> so let's see the room. This came out on June 27th, 2003 falls into our 20 year category and it appears on our list because of the other category was not Oscar nominated and was not top 10 in, in uh, box office. Uh, written and directed and starring and produced by Tommy Wiseau. And he painted <laughs> the fence outside the studio and, and swept the floor. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, also starring Greg Sestero, Juliet Daniel, Philip Haldeman, Caroline Minot, Robin Paris, and Dan Janjigan. I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm terrible at names and I'm not even going to apologize for it. Well, his, his character name was Chris R. So, okay. Chris R. Yeah. <laughs> um, this movie grossed $1,900 in the U S box <laughs> office off of a $6 million budget. And when you watch this movie, it's like, where the heck did that money go? Cause it doesn't make any sense how this movie costs $6 million to make. There's a lot of small theories, right? I mean, yeah, really, really. Yeah. Go ahead. One of the, one of the biggest and craziest things he did was buy the equipment, right? Instead of renting everything. Yeah. That had to be where a chunk of that went. Yeah. You don't generally buy movie equipment. That's half of the economic boom in that town is from people renting out products and services to people making movies. So 
Mm-hmm. Critically, this is considered one of the worst movies ever made. The Rotten Tomato score is a 25, probably the lowest we've seen. The audience score is not any better, 27. The uh, consensus on Rotten Tomatoes says a bona fide classic of midnight cinema. Tommy Wiseau's misguided masterpiece subverts the rules of filmmaking with a boundless enthusiasm that renders such mundanities as acting, screenwriting, and cinematography utterly irrelevant. You will never see a football the same way again. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and one one note here that you wrote that I I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around. This won the Audience Award for Best Feature Film at the New York International Independent Film and Video Festival in 2004. That's what IMDb says. Apparently, it screened somewhere and won something. Well, yeah, they won because it was everybody was just floored that they were enjoying something so atrocious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's not for lack of trying. Remember, Tommy Wiseau wanted to keep the film in the theaters for two weeks minimum so he could make it eligible for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh... <laughs> just the, the sheer guts, right? I mean, the sheer guts. <laughs> well, just... and it did not uh, did not earn anything at those Oscars that year. But no, that was... no. I think the only way they were going to the Oscars was if Tommy bought a ticket. Can you imagine that hearing those nominations read that year? The nominees for Best Picture are The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Lost in Translation, Mystic River, and The Room. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That would have yeah. been a sight to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather, what did you think of this film when you when you started the first couple of times? Because obviously you had never seen it, period. Trevor and I have seen it previously you had never seen it uh what, what was your uh what was your reaction at first i couldn't believe that it was just that bad i mean like the acting was terrible from the jump and you could just tell that like tommy wiseau was taking the whole thing really seriously and but i just sat there and i just thought could it possibly get worse and then it did and I couldn't believe, you know, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but all, all the uh, intimate scenes in this film. Wow. A little wow. <laughs> there's a, there's a line from the disaster artist that I think sums it up pretty perfectly. <laughs> I think Seth Rogen says it. <laughs> he does. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And yeah, he's several inches too high. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it was pretty rough. And, and Trevor, I want to take you back for a minute because this movie made me think about one of our collective experiences together uh, working on one of your films that we were working on. And I remember we were talking about the filming timeline for it. I was doing the sound and Heather was doing, I think you were editing, honey. No, you're filming. I was filming. Yeah. So the, the film that uh, the film that we were working on, Heather and I were having an argument driving back home because I said, you know, it shouldn't take this long to shoot this movie. And we were having this conversation about it. And it was really showcasing the fact that I had absolutely no idea how video production or film production works, literally none. I was like, well, why couldn't we shoot this in this amount of time or do this? And it seems to me that if somebody had come up to me after that and said, you know what, we'll try it. We'll give you $6 million to make a movie go. That's what happened with Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, he had no idea what he was doing. And, but I mean, and we'll, we'll talk more in the disaster artist, but like, uh, the the way that movie presents it, it makes it look like that he paid for it himself mm-hmm. and yeah. that nobody really knew where he was getting that money from. You're right. Not knowing anything about the process and then suddenly being thrown into it. It's kind of kind of weird how it all yeah. works out. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. Why couldn't we shoot it in a shorter amount of time? But I mean, that movie was 
like a half hour long when it was done and it took us what three 18 hour days to film it mm-hmm. yeah so mm-hmm. it was a really long weekend so which i'm very <laughs> grateful for you all giving up your time on that no it was a, it was a really fun experience and and honestly it was a good it was a good introduction for me into what I had not come to learn at that age, which was there's a lot you don't know about what you don't know. And some of it, you just have to experience it to figure it out. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of things that if Tommy were going to make movies now, which he apparently still is, he just released a movie in August called Big Shark. I'm sure to be an Oscar nominee. I'm I'm absolutely certain. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, leading to some pretty obviously big and possibly dangerous mistakes on the setting of this film. Like Tommy said that everybody on the cast had to be there. You want to talk about the budget. Imagine having to pay everyone on the set, the cast, for being there every day starting at 8 a.m. on just in case he wanted to pull them into a scene. So you had tons of people being paid to be there who weren't doing anything. Yeah, and that's not the way it works. Right. No. Um, Not to mention, apparently, when he was cutting the love, when they were filming the love scenes with Juliet Danielle, Juliet Danielle was under the impression that in the final film, they were going to be a couple of seconds But apparently Tommy thought it was going to be the meat of the movie because not only is the scene uncomfortably long, but he cut a second edit of it. And there's a second scene in the film made up of the recycled footage from that scene. Well, there's like there's like three scenes within the first like 15 or 20 minutes and (laughs) they're all set to like early 2000s R&B music. And it's like just uh, no, I I, I try. (laughs) They are. And we actually skip through stuff, but I jumped through those. I wasn't. No. So we actually, I told Scotty, I said, I bet you uh, Tommy Wiseau had something to do with producing this music. And he totally did because we looked it up. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, he did. He did everything else. I mean, I figured he probably also cooked and catered the onset lunches. I mean, (laughs) the guy got to do something to make money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But no, just a lot of things that you can tell the movie was being made by somebody who had no idea how to make movies. Apparently there's some focus problems with the way the movie shot because he bought two different sets of cameras and then wound up kind of mixing and intermingling the different cameras for the shots. Trevor, can you speak to that a little bit? All I know about the making of this movie is from what James Franco taught me um, (laughs) in The Disaster Artist. And yeah, they show him, they're like, you know, what kind of cameras do you want? Do you want do you want film or do you want digital? And he was like both. And then they filmed both of the they filmed the movie at both times. But you can't do that really because there's different ways to light it and lens it and all that when it's a film camera versus a digital camera. And you know, in in 2003, what they were using for digital cameras was certainly lesser quality than they are now. And you can see that on some of the earlier movies that were shot on digital. It's very blurry, I guess, is a good way of putting it. I can't really describe it, but uh, you know it when you see it. Nobody wanted to tell this guy no because he was paying everybody's salaries, but somebody should have told him right off the start. It's like, you need to pick one and mm-hmm. that's final but they were like well this guy's gonna buy our cameras so yeah if he wants to buy them both and film them both and go for it but mm-hmm. somewhere somebody should have shot that down and said you need to pick one because if he did that and you can tell that he has edited the movie together with both the digital and the film mm-hmm. and it's very obvious that uh that that's the case so yeah really just really poor management on that one but nobody like i said nobody's going to tell him no because he's such a weird dude and he had the paycheck so what are you gonna right. do right which you know in a way i kind of thought about the mona lisa and in the fact that not not in terms of quality of product 
But one of the things that makes the Mona Lisa so interesting to the casual art person is there's a lot of mystery surrounding like who she is and, and other things like that. There's still so much mystery on Tommy Wiseau, specifically where he got that money from. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the major questions have been answered. Apparently, according to naturalization documents, uh, his age was a mystery they pointed out in the disaster artist. It says, according to his naturalization documents, he was born in Poland in October of 1955, which would make him 68, I think is my math uh, currently. And, but mm-hmm. they did not answer the question, which meant in 2003, he would have been, you know, in his mid forties, late forties. Yeah. Thank you. Late yeah, 40s. F- 48. Yeah. Cause that was 20 years ago. Right. But cavorting with like Greg Sestero, who I believe was pretty young when the, like in made. his twenties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he kept saying, I'm, I'm your age. I'm your age. I'm your no. age. Yeah. yeah. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's just one of those weird things that there's a lot of weird kind of niche sort of details around this film. Apparently, Tommy said um, on an AMA in Reddit that he was planning to make a sequel to this film. There is actually a credit on IMDb for a remake of the film called The Room Returns. Yeah, so that's a little, is it The Room Returns or something like that? They apparently did a shot for shot remake of it with like actual actors and Mm -hmm. real. So I think Bob Odenkirk is playing Tommy's character. Mm-hmm. John, was it Johnny? Yeah, yeah, um, Johnny. That was supposed to come out this year, but I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it did. So, mm. well, the, the credit says it's in post production. Okay, yeah. So maybe they're doing whatever they have to do uh, in that area. But another weird detail. So one of the reasons, one of the lines that you hear a whole lot in this film is, "Well, she's she's your future wife. She's my future wife. He's he's my future husband." So apparently mm-hmm. it's really odd because it's one of those things that you notice because it's not there. There's already a word for a person who you're expected to be married to. Beyonce. Right. right. But apparently Tommy was so hell bent on not speaking any language besides English in this film that he refused to have any word spoken, not in English, which is why he insisted on future wife, future husband instead of fiance. Just one of those things that makes the movie dialogue sound so plastic and not real. Mm-hmm. Right. It is. Yeah. Everything about this movie is plastic and not real. Just from the way it's all delivered and all the, the dialogue and just. There's just no from... chemistry on set no. anywhere. And Lisa's wishy-washy between the two different guys. Mm-hmm. I don't love Johnny. I love Mark. I love Johnny. No, I love Mark. It's like, come on. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Well, and, and it's funny because in the in the months since we filmed the last episode, I've been taking on this life endeavor trying to become, uh, trying to take a stand-up comedy class and learn about writing for comedy. So I've done a lot of reading about how people write for comedy. And one of the things it says a lot is one of the the basics of a funny premise is it has to be honest and original and authentic. And you can tell they're trying to do that because there's scenes where Lisa kind of muses on the nature of women's communication with men, but it's very basic and banal. Like, well, women never say what they mean. Ha 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 ha. And it's just so, so bad because apparently the script, even the script we got was something of a polished product because the script supervisor that they hired wound up taking long chunks of the script out. Apparently there were lots of monologues. There were lots of other things. And one crew member apparently said that some of the lines in the film were just boring borderline unsayable. So credit to the script supervisor, uh, Sandy Schler, it says, for being part of the cutting out of those scenes, because I mean, it, it could have been worse, guys. Ooh, I can't imagine yeah. what worse looks like. Oh, no idea. Literally no idea. But I do want to kind of pose both of you a, a question before we jump over to the disaster artist, because let's be honest, most of what can be said about the room has been said. You know, It's, it's just bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the only other thing I will point out is if you are the kind of person who does not like this film and you don't think it is so bad it's good you have two people to blame for its current cult status 
And that is the gentlemen's names are Michael Rousselet and Scott Gairdner. If I say their name, if I say their names wrong, I apologize. Um, they're credited with starting the phenomenon because apparently Michael went to see the original run of the films, the original run of the movie, and for some reason was the one in a hundred who thought it was amazing and then called a bunch of friends to go see it in another viewing. And they are the ones who brought some of those aspects. Like they brought the spoons and they brought the fake footballs and they brought the yelling at the screen. Uh, Apparently they intended it to be some kind of quote unquote Viking funeral for the film, but wound up creating a tradition that, that probably wound up turning a profit for the film over the long run. Well, yeah, they do like midnight screenings of this now, like other cult classics and stuff like that. I remember seeing a piece on the news a bunch of years ago where um, they were talking about this and they actually interviewed Alec Baldwin because he was apparently at the movie theater and he saw all these people lined up for it. And he just walked up to some random person. He was like, what's going on here? And they were like, oh, well, it's the room. And he's, oh, tell me more about it. And then that's that was kind of I think how I found out about it. I wasn't really aware of it until I saw that piece on tv but Mm -hmm. you know you keep talking about so bad it's good and that's a phrase that i don't understand (laughs) i don't get it at all Um, neither does my wife because how can something be bad and good it doesn't make sense i think where i discovered that 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 was not something i was into was i think what's widely considered this is one of the worst movies ever made i think people will say that i think what's widely considered the worst movie ever made is something called plan nine from outer space (laughs) right ed wood Um, yeah ed wood yeah i rented that with a friend back in high school because we wanted to see the so bad it's so good movie right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's nothing redeemable about it it's flat out terrible like it really is the worst movie ever made and i'm like where's the enjoyment in this it didn't make any sense to me as i was watching that i couldn't wrap my mind around people that would like go out of their way to see this and Mm -hmm. then there were other movies that would come out over the over the years that uh people would say oh it's so bad it's good like one of them is what is it snakes on a plane Mm -hmm. that was not that was not good and it wasn't so bad it was good it was bad Yes. It was not good. I would I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so allow me to try to explain this as artfully uh, as I believe I can. I did some research on the topic because I know I'm not the only one who believes in the concept of the good, bad movie. There's a couple different uh, media sources that had some things to say about it. One, it was Gizmodo actually said that um, one key ingredient for a good, bad movie is operatic and shameless performances. So somebody really jumping in, really going for it. Like, for example, the, the one I pointed out and I kind of showed Heather some scenes from it is The Street Fighter movie that came out back in the 90s and again by all accounts not a good movie but you know you mentioned script and plot and well it is a movie based on a video game that is randomly selected people fighting in randomly selected locations somebody decided to make a movie out of that what makes that movie a good bad movie is raul julia's performance as m bison yeah, he went there. He gave it all his all. And that was his 100%. last performance too. So like he it went was. on a high note. Absolutely. I showed Heather the, the monologue scene where uh, uh, Chun-Li gives him this whole story about him raiding a village and his her father beating them back with pitchforks. He delivers that classic line about, well, for you, the day that Jim Bison uh, raided your village is the most memorable day of your life. For me, it was Tuesday. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Heather laughed out loud. I was like, that is an example. Raul Julia and, and Jean-Claude Van Damme too went for it in a movie that had no business being good in the first place. And so I liken it to a karaoke night. There's three people you're going to hear at karaoke. There's people who are legitimately good singers. They're fun. They're enjoyable. They're whatever. The bad singers are going to fall into two categories. There's the people who take themselves entirely too seriously and they jump up there to sing Wonderwall like the record producer is going to be there and give them a uh, 
contract's gonna change your life forever. Then there's the guy who jumps up to sing White Wedding, can't sing it, but goes in. And the audience much more enjoys that presentation. So I do believe the good, bad movie exists if it doesn't take itself too seriously. And again, the performances have to be there. Like Nick Cage, half of Nick Cage's movies are good, bad movies because he just always goes for it. I mean, Con Air, right? Mm-hmm. Con Air, he's, he's got this really bad Alabama accent. He's on a plane with John Malkovich. John Malkovich pretending to be a serial killer. Like it's, it's bonkers, but it's also fun. And when I had the cable USA network, when Conair was on, I stopped and watched it. I mean, maybe that's just my awful palette for movies. What do y'all think? That's not a good, bad movie. That's a good movie. Oh, yeah, you just said that's a good gonna, movie. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I kind of like that movie. Yeah. Nick Cage gets a lot of crap for his, you know, over the top manner in which he does things. But I mean, in the nineties, his stuff was awesome. Like mm-hmm. the rock mm-hmm. and face off mm-hmm. and Conair. And I mean, let's not forget the man won an Academy Award for playing a drunk. Yeah. Okay? And like, that's, you know, nowadays that that's kind of worn off. And I don't think people really, really like that too much anymore. But which is why his stuff is kind of faded. And now he just kind of takes whatever he can get, mm-hmm. which is still a lot because he's still putting movies out every single year. We just don't see him all the time. Yeah. Haven't seen Renfeld, but I heard good things about it. And we, Heather and I nope. did watch The Unbearable Weight of Genius. We did Thumbs watch down. that. And that was actually pretty entertaining. That was awesome. Renfield was not. Renfield was not. Okay. No, but unbearable. What unbearable weight of talent? Or yeah, one of those, something like what, that. Something like unbearable oh, weight. Oh yeah. Of, God, why am I blanking on that name? I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have because to look it up. I'm sitting here. That movie was awesome. I loved Nick Cage playing himself. That was great. That was crazy. Yeah. The unbearable weight of massive talent. Yes. Correct. Yes. That was good. And right. Yeah, he, very, he, very meta and hilarious. I, I love the fact that like. I, I don't want I don't want to say anything given it away, but uh, he's invited to this island by this super fan. And he's got like mm-hmm. all these props from all these old Nicolas Cage movies. It was fantastic. Yeah. 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 And there was that great line. This statue is horrible. I'll give you 75,000 for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that there are such a thing as good, bad movies. But I will go ahead and go against the grain the other way. The room does not belong in that category. Because if we ask the question, and I'm gonna go ahead and ask it. Does anybody really believe Tommy Wiseau was in on the joke when he started making this movie? No, no, he was absolutely not serious. And the yeah. way that the disaster artist tells it is he was trying to make something akin to uh, a streetcar named Desire. Mm hmm. And um, he missed the mark by a little bit on that one. He thought he was making something real gritty. He referenced Tennessee Williams. Apparently, the You Are Tearing Me Apart, Lisa, was a James Dean ripoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the best acting of the whole movie right there. That was, that was... <laughs> tearing me apart, Lisa. <laughs> but but no, I, I think that Tommy, and again, I would have done the same thing if I were in Tommy's position, if I had attempted to make something I thought would be seriously, seriously good, but then became so bad, everybody thought I did it as a joke. I would have leaned into it the same way he has. Yeah, that's but, about mm-hmm. the best you can do at that point. But that being said, I think that is entirely what he did. Um, and it's worked out for him because I would say that it is a solid bet. The film has at least made its money back and then some. And I could not source it, but somewhere somebody did claim that the New York Times interviewed him and he said he made 30 million off the film. Wouldn't surprise me. I mean, well, you think about 20 years, right? And can you scratch off? Can you scratch up a million dollars a year in those midnight showings? Probably. I mean, the amount of people that show up for this stuff just to have fun. I mean, like there is a large group of people out there that think movies are so bad. They're good. And this certainly is that to a large number of people, which is why we're still talking about it 20 years later. Mm-hmm. When there's other uh, movies that compared are just, to good, no, there's other movies that are awful and terrible that come out in, in any given year. And those are 
completely forgot about. Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know. It's this one still hangs around because it definitely strikes a chord with folks. People like going in there and watching terrible acting and terrible writing. At best, it's slightly amusing. I mean, you know. Yeah, but I, I don't know. It, it it troubles me to put it in the same category as, say, a Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is another one of those films. Tons of midnight viewings, very interactive for the audience. Lots of things happen. But I would say Rocky Horror Picture is a far better film than The Room. Well, yeah, that goes with that same. <laughs> right, which leads me to bristle even at the idea that it's a cult classic. I, I actually, it bothers me more to hear it called a cult classic because that's some pretty elite company for movies. Yeah. Those are movies that essentially, if we have the definition right, were not well-liked when they came out, but became far more popular in rewatches. One of Heather's favorite movies, Office Space, cult Yay. classic. Yep. I do love that movie. It makes me crack up every time I sit down and watch it. It just gets me. I mean, The Big Lebowski, Pulp Fiction, Donnie Darko, The Princess Bride, Fight Club, The Room. One of these don't belong. Yeah. Yeah. Room doesn't belong on that list. But, but it gets mentioned as a cult classic. And like, it doesn't belong on that list, but it's on that list. Sorry. A cult classic comes from the people, not from one person. So just because you don't like it being a cult classic doesn't make it not so. So no, that's a, that's a fair. Unfortunately, point. it is one. I just don't like it. <laughs> so. Fair enough. I'm, I think we're all in the same boat, though. None of us liked it. Yeah, I think that's one of those where like on the rewatch, it's just not there. No, and um, I struggled. No. To, I struggled to watch it again the second time. And like I said, I don't like I don't fast forward through stuff. But that the first 20 minutes of that movie where we keep going in the bedroom. No so bad. Just jumping through that. I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't look at this. This Yeah, is it was not, awful. Yeah, no, not generally not good. And, and we could talk for a while about that. But let's go ahead and switch gears and jump to the other movie we were going to talk about as part of this doubleheader, a far superior film that still manages to tackle the same topic. And that is The Disaster Artist. Heather, can you take us through some of the details on The Disaster Artist? Sure. This movie was released on December 8th, 2017. It is starring James Franco, Dave Franco, Ari Gaynor, Josh Hutcherson, Jackie Weaver, June Diane Raphael, Zach Efron, and Seth Rogen. It was written by Scott Trevor. You might have to help me with that. Newstater. Thank you. Uh, Michael H. Weber and Greg Sestero. Is that right? Sestero. Yeah, the same one who starred (laughs) in the room. Yeah. Okay. Uh, directed by James Franco, music by Dave Porter. This had a uh, $10 million budget and it grossed $21.1 million uh, domestically and in Canada and worldwide $29.8 million. Rotten Tomatoes score 91 and the audience put it at an 85. So that's just a huge contrast from the room itself. And it says, oh, hi, Mark. The Disaster Artist is a surprisingly poignant and charming movie about a movie that explores the creative process with unexpected delicacy. It was nominated for Best Oscar. Uh, I'm sorry, it was nominated for an Oscar Best Adapted Screenplay, and it won a Golden Globe. Uh, James Franco won that. And it also won for Best Picture and Musical Comedy. Yeah, and I think this this also came out right at the start of um, some of those unsavory things we heard about James Franco back then. Um, mm-hmm. And that may have affected its Oscar status, because I think a lot of folks were thinking Franco is on his way to a Best Actor nomination. A Best Picture nomination wasn't out of the question. A Best Director nomination wasn't out of the question and then all this stuff comes out and then um the only thing it grabs is a adapted screenplay nomination which is fine it deserved that for sure mm-hmm. yeah it, it didn't it didn't end up getting the oscar glory it probably deserved but it certainly is 
a far superior movie for sure. Well, and it lost the it lost the Oscar to Call Me by Your Name, uh, which I have not seen. Have you? Did you see that? Yeah, so I've seen that. It's pretty good. And that was actually written by James Ivory, who is one half of the old Merchant Ivory, Remains of the Day, Howard's End, Room with a View, those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were up for Best Picture and Best Directors and Best screenplays the years they came out but they never won so this was mr ivory's first oscar win after several attempts at uh getting one before so it was a welcomed honor for him to, to get that i don't think that was like a makeup award or anything i think that just that straight up won mm-hmm. so yeah, that, def- yeah definitely definitely was a deserving cool. film i would say yeah this movie really surprised me because i had never seen the room before um, before we did it for this. And then I, I was like, why am I going to watch a movie about the making of a movie that was that bad? And so I didn't expect much when we watched The Disaster Artist, but I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And I think really, you know, this one doesn't fall into our 20, 30, 40 year categories, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I think it's worth discussing if we're talking about the room because this kind of does lend some backstage information about it, you know, behind the scenes stuff. So it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting to see it. It's like, how did this get made? And it's like, well, here you go. This is how it got made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it adds a little bit more to the room. So when you watch it, you kind of have this idea of what was going on behind it. Because now that you sort of know what was happening, I'm not saying it makes it better, but it might make it make more sense. Sure. Will. So. Yeah. Ultimately, the story of how it's made is probably more captivating than the film itself. That's true. Oh, by far. Yeah. Um, because a guy, again, if you told me that if you told me there was a movie coming out this year that was financed, produced, directed, and written by some dude who backed it with six million dollars of his own money and was apparently this much of a terror to work with on set, I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna see it. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, th- so the story of how it's made, I think, is ultimately more compelling than the film itself. Really enjoyed James Franco's performance, which odd Tommy Wiseau is apparently kind of sometimes combative and sometimes not when people are telling a story. There was one group trying to make a documentary or release a documentary about the film called A Room Full of Spoons. And Tommy's been fighting that thing tooth and nail to have it not come out. They just recently lost a lawsuit for it a year or two back, but the film still hasn't been released. And however, Tommy apparently was fully supportive of this film. In fact, approved of 99.9% of it, except for two things. Any guesses what the two things were he didn't like? I'll bite. Number one, he did not like the way James Franco threw the football. Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, do you not understand? He's he's imitating the way you threw the football. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, which led to a funnier conversation. I went down a rabbit hole about apparently how there's a lot of movies where Hollywood folks make it clear they don't know how to throw and catch a football. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is a really small detail. It had something to do with the way the first scene was lit when they were doing that theater thing. Apparently, he didn't like the way that first scene was lit. Oh, he's going to complain about lighting. Okay. He didn't really have... <laughs> He didn't really have too much room to be a little pissed off about the movie coming out because it's based on a book mm-hmm. that Sestero wrote called The Disaster Artist. So mm-hmm. ultimately, he'd be taking issue with his own friend. Right. Which he wasn't going to do because they're best friends. Mm-hmm. He's your best friend. Yep. They did another movie a couple of years ago, and I can't remember what it was called. I'm going to look it up. But uh, it was Wusso didn't direct it. But he and Sestero were both in it. Here it is. It's called Best Friends, but the R in Friends is in parentheses, so maybe Best Fiends. But yeah, both of them were in that. It looks like Greg Sestero wrote it, and he and Tommy were both the lead roles in that movie. I never saw it, mm-hmm. but it came out in 2017, so right around the same time as... Uh, well, no, it was. looks like it was a premiere in 17, then it was released in 18, so right after uh, Disaster Artist came out. Right when they were still enjoying some of their fame. 
and fortune mm -hmm. because yeah. obviously more people went to see that one in the theater than they did the room mm -hmm. well which probably had kind of a kind of a ripple effect on the sales for the room again yeah. tommy tommy invested money in this and we don't know how much he actually made but i do believe he made his money back and then some yeah yeah, I was just looking at this too. They that remake of the room that they did that stars Bob Odenkirk as Johnny. Greg Sestero's in it. And he's playing Chris R in that. <laughs> and it says that they filmed this movie in one day. Oh wow! They did it in one day. Yeah. How long is the film? I don't know. It's not out yet. But uh, okay. they said that the profits of the film are being donated to an organization that funds HIV research. So at least if you're paying for it, go into a good cause. So, mm -hmm. but Bella Heathcote is going to be in it. Kate Siegel's going to be in it. She's playing Lisa's mother, which is kind of weird because hmm. Bella Heathcote is 36 and Kate Siegel is 41. So yeah, hmm. that's a little weird. And then Mike Flanagan is in it. He plays Peter, the psychologist and friend of Mark and Johnny. The Mike one that Flan like gets tackled or something. Yeah. Mike Flanagan is married to Kate Siegel and Mike Flanagan is a maker of amazing horror movies, mostly that come out on Netflix. I would highly recommend pretty much anything that his name is attached to. He did uh, a movie called Hush, which is on Netflix, which mm -hmm. is really good. Um, He did a movie uh, he did one of the Ouija movies, The Origin of Evil, which I wasn't a fan of Ouija, but man, that one was really good, Origin of Evil. Mm -hmm. He did Gerald's Game, which is a another Stephen King yeah. movie. That's a short story. And then um, Dr. Sleep, he did, which is the uh, sequel to The Shining that starred Ewan McGregor, which was amazing. And then he's got mm -hmm. a bunch of a bunch of stuff that he's directed for or created and directed and written for Netflix, The Haunting on Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, The Midnight Club and the new one that just came out the fall of the house of usher he's keeping busy he's keeping very busy wow. <laughs> and yet he had time to go and play peter the psychologist in the room role of a lifetime come on i guess yeah couldn't turn it down <laughs> some some things are worth it uh apparently as well as shooting the plot of this film the disaster artist trevor mean you talked about this previously it says they shot 20 minutes shot for shot from the film uh -huh. so they essentially recreated the room shot for shot maybe some key 20 minutes of it i guess yeah it was my understanding initially that they had film the whole thing but yeah 20 minutes seems to be and they, they show that on the closing credits too they mm -hmm. they, they did have, yeah they have both the original movie mm -hmm. playing side by side with what they shot for shot remake and it did pretty good mm -hmm. you know franco had a couple different acting choices for whatever reason instead yeah. of just impersonating the role but uh yeah it was it's interesting to see that also shows you i think that uh they do appreciate and respect the movie enough to do it like that and to not do it in a comedic way like he really went out and did it actually mm -hmm. i think one of my favorite parts in the in the whole movie the disaster artist is when they're about to film his first scene which was him coming out onto the roof i did, <laughs> yeah. I did not hit her i did not i did, I did and not. so he's he's sitting there in makeup and he's rehearsing his line he's rehearsing oh hi mark oh hi mark and um he's just trying different things trying to make it sound it sounds so robotic every time and then dave franco walks by and he goes hey johnny and then he just goes oh hi greg like completely normal <laughs> and it's like that's all you yeah. need to do you not, not understanding right yeah, yeah yeah exactly completely not understanding anything like that he's oh hi mark oh hi mark hey johnny <laughs> oh hi greg like, yeah it's not supposed to be forced come on yeah. Again, I if there's one if there's if I could convince one person who's listening who would be listening to this that the film is just bad and has been pretending to be good, it's the end of of the room. This entirely staged, oh. entirely too graphic scene where you know Johnny ends everything, and it's like that's not funny. No. Like, right. 
not even a little bit funny. It's not even so bad. It's good funny. It's like, wow, he's trying to portray that really horrible, horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then when you watch the disaster artist and they get to that, everybody in the audience as they're watching is egging him on. Yeah. 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 Do it. And then he does it and everyone <laughs> applauds. It's, they're Which, laughing. Yeah. Well, I did read in some of the uh, stuff I read about the disaster artist that that particular showing is not necessarily meant to represent the first showing of the film as much as it is some of those campy midnight sort of cult classic viewings of the film later, because they do things in that viewing that you would wind up hearing doing like, like counting things and saying words and, and scripts over and over again uh, and things like that. Apparently it was more of a shocked silence when the first film, when it was first screened. That makes a lot of sense. Because I did not see that coming when we when we watched it, and I was like, "Really? That's how this is going to end?" Yeah, really ridiculous. Now, one other cult classic uh, that sort of ended in the same way originally was Clerks. Clerks ended with uh, Dante. I guess was it his name? I can't remember. It's been a while since yeah, I've seen yeah. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Ended up with him getting shot in a robbery gone wrong at the very end of the movie, and he wasn't even supposed to be here today. You know, like that's <laughs> his whole thing throughout the whole movie. Yeah, and it screened at Sundance like that, and it still received an offer to get picked up and distributed, but they changed it. They cut that out. They were like, no, this. This movie can't end that way. So maybe if Johnny, if Tommy had some more oversight, maybe it wouldn't have happened that way. But like I said, nobody wanted to tell the guy no. Mm -hmm. Everyone's just like, this is your thing. So which is kind of the same thing I ran into when we were filming. My stuff is or our stuff. That's what I said. It's I everybody kept trying to say, you know, they didn't want to give me any suggestions or hints or tips or anything like that because it was my Mm -hmm. thing. And I'm like, it's not my thing. It's our thing. Like we're doing this. Like Mm -hmm. I wrote it. Yeah. We're making it. Like, so it's not like it's not my movie anymore like you Mm -hmm. know like we're all in it so if you have anything if something is being said or something needs to be changed or whatever then let's let's do it like i don't want it to come across wrong and i caught some of that after we were done and we were putting it together and they were like oh yeah you you should have said that line because people don't really say it when they're talking about that particular thing why don't you tell me that day up oh yeah no yeah doing it drive-by style kind of afterwards is really the convenient way to do it isn't it yeah like why don't you Mm -hmm. tell me i didn't want to step on your toes it's like it's not your toes it's our toes this is this is our movie we're the ones making it I think that's what most directors and people understand that, but I guess Tommy didn't and nobody mm-hmm. wanted to, nobody wanted to step on his toes like that. So, well, it would make me curious how that dynamic does play out on a movie set, because I can tell you from our experience at that time, from my vantage point, which was usually over the top of the scene, holding a hockey stick and hoping to God it didn't wind up in the frame. Um, it was <laughs> I was saying it, it was, it was a real boom. Okay. Like we weren't, <laughs> we weren't that cheap. No, Hey, it worked. <laughs> you know, Heather, Heather showed that to me. She said, Hey, you're going to use, you're going to hold this hockey stick. I was like, okay, that's going to be hard. Meanwhile, my everybody's screaming at me halfway through the scenes, but it, you know, it worked. It's not that it didn't work. It hundred percent did, but I did not feel qualified to offer an opinion as the guy who was doing sound, not even a little bit. Well, you um, should have, if you thought of one, because your <laughs> wife was holding the camera and she offered mm-hmm. plenty. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, well, I felt like she was qualified to do that because she had kind of this idea for how she, like what she saw. You and were for qualified. Me, I brought you on that set. You were qualified to be there. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate the thought and uh, possibly for a future movie, you might regret um, you might regret asking me to give my opinion. But no, I don't think so. <laughs> I've seen an interview with Brian Cranston. You've probably seen it. Other people have probably seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, he did an episode of Seinfeld way back in the day and they were doing the, the run through before they actually filmed it. So he's sitting there. He was playing a dentist and I guess Jerry or someone was in the dentist chair. So usually when they do these things, they'll bring everyone in. They'll walk through it with the cast and with the DP 
EVP and all that and everything. And they'll kind of get everything straight. And then the actors will leave to go get makeup or costume or whatever. And then they'll light it. They'll bring the cameras in and then they'll bring everyone back and go. So when this happened, Cranston stayed on because he was still running his line and a grip in the rafters lighting the set was like, hey, you should take the nitrous and inhale it before putting it on Jerry's nose. And Cranston was like, that's a great idea. <laughs> and so when they come back in, Jerry had no idea this was going to happen. So they're rolling and he takes the, the nitrous and <laughs> takes a hit off of it and then tries to put it in Seinfeld, <laughs> just like losing it. And they're like, that was awesome. That's a good idea. He goes, not mine. It's that guy's. And I think <laughs> Cranston told the story. He's like, you know, never discredit where an idea comes from because a good idea can come from anywhere mm -hmm. as long as you're willing to listen. So no, that's a, that's a fair point. So I think all of us are too emotionally scarred to discuss how we feel about either of these films in the rearview mirror. So let's end on this. Uh, let's all give one recommendation for a cult classic film that if you have not seen it, you should see it. Trevor, start with you. Oh man. Um, I'd say, gosh, the big Lebowski is probably my favorite, but mm -hmm. I'm sure everybody's seen that by now. But yeah, if you haven't, then fix that Heather. What the hell? <laughs> I haven't seen it. <laughs> Well, it'll be a while before we come up on that one. That'll be yeah. 30. It won't be till 2028 when that turns 30. So it'll it'll really tie the whole year together in, in terms of reviews. Yeah. Inside <laughs> joke. Hey, uh, Heather, what about uh, what about you? Call classic. You think more people should watch Office Space. I love that movie. <laughs> That's a good one. It's hilarious and relatable and it's a million times better than The Room. So there you That's go. That's true. Well, and I would say most Mike Judge movies tend to go that route. Extracts was one that I don't think was well reviewed when it came out, but I, I thought it was okay on rewatches. And Idiocracy, right? Idiocracy. Yeah. Well, that movie that, is literally my worst nightmare. As that movie becomes more and more of a reality, I think, you know, because when that came out, I don't think anybody really saw it. And now it's kind of gained favoritism and that status as it's gone by over the years, simply because every year that we continue to move on, it something else in that movie becomes true. Mm -hmm. Which so. is really frightening if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, the guy, the humor is just so smart that it eventually just takes time to catch up. Yep. Um, for my part, I'm going to recommend two. The two I'm going to recommend are Fight Club and Donnie Darko. Mm -hmm. I had a group of friends in high school that took me to see Fight Club five times, legit five times in the theater. We were this group of like police explorers. And after every meeting, every Thursday, we would go to pizza Inn or something and get pizza. And then we would go see a movie for literally, we went on a stretch where it was like the sixth sense two or three times. And then it was fight club and loved fight club. Thought it was excellent. And the same thing for Donnie Darko, both of them very, very like very cerebral, a whole lot to think about. And fight club has the unique distinction of being one movie where the author of the book actually thinks the movie is better than the book. Mm-hmm. I think I only saw that in the theaters maybe once, but uh, I think that was one of the very first DVDs I ever bought. Yeah, I watched a lot of it after it came out on DVD because I, I really liked it in the theater, but on DVD, it's kind of where you can watch it and see the, um, you know, all the things you missed before because mm -hmm. we won't spoil the ending of that one, at least not until 2029 when it turns 30. <laughs> um, and to throw one more random question at you before we uh, jump into our next, what our next film for the next episode is going to be. Uh, what is a movie that you refuse to watch? You heard it come out and you were so disliking of the premise. You refuse to watch it. Gosh, none. <laughs> I'll watch anything. Okay. Heather, how about you? Pretty much every horror movie ever made. <laughs> 
This is our tag for the exorcist to uh, bring that yeah. up again. For <laughs> we're going to get that. We're going to get that. We got two more opportunities because we're almost at the end of the year here now. That's right. There's only two more movies left. And then we reset that list. I would be the only person who feels the way I feel about this maybe, but I refused to ever see the karate kid remake with, uh, with Jaden Smith refused. Mm. Absolutely mm-hmm. refused. Um, I thought I just did not like it. And there's a reason it has not come into that, uh, sort of Cobra Kai world yet. I just can't stand that film. I saw it. I said, man, it feels like the people who made this film have no understanding of what made the original good. Yeah. Well, I didn't see that either, but yeah, that was because I refused. It's just, yeah, there's things I just don't feel like watching. (laughs) I I won't even watch scenes from it. Like Mm -hmm. again, because Jackie Chan is in that film as Mr. Miyagi, Jackie Chan being Mr. Miyagi completely destroys the point of Mr. Miyagi. Right. It's Jackie Chan. You know, he kicks behind. You don't think Pat Morita is going to kick behind. You think he's the funny guy from happy days. But anyway, I digress. So uh, Trevor, what is our next film for the next round? uh, All right. Let's boot up the machine. Shall we? (laughs) We're going to get, see our whammies here. Uh, What can we offer Computron to possibly give us a better movie this time? Well, it's going to be a better movie no matter I, what. I was going to say that won't take much. I, there's no. nowhere to go from nowhere to go but up. I understand that, yeah. but yeah. I really don't want to tempt fate and you know wind up well, having to watch Plan Nine from Outer Space. No, not it's that's over than fifty years old, so that's out of our realm. So, well, we haven't had any from the seventies yet, so this would be a really great time for The Exorcist to come up. Hey, um, and Trevor, uh, what? Come on, <laughs> tell Computron I said this no. Was, this was October. If it was going to be a month for it to happen, this was going to be it, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Whatever. I mean, maybe in a way, it did something scary. True. Yeah, it's true. That's true. It was very scary. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's hit the button here. No whammies. No whammies. No whammies. No whammies. Stop. <laughs> it's not The Exorcist. You can uh, breathe. Yeah, I'm relieved. Okay. But do you remember? Do you remember when we when we first sat down and I said, you know what? I'll throw you a bone here. I'll I'll take a movie out and put the one you want in there. Well, yeah. guess what? Oh, we no. freaking landed on it. No. Yes. How yes! to lose a, How Yay! to lose a guy in ten days. Oh, I'm so excited! I love that movie so much. Oh, oh my boy. gosh! So that'll be our November movie, and Yay! then we have mm-hmm. to uh, hope and pray that December comes up all things Exorcist, or else it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> Hey, there's been a run of scary Christmas movies happening, and I'm and honestly, I'm kind of here for it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, my well, we'll gosh. see what happens. Mm. So yeah, uh, how to lose a guy in ten days? Next movie. I'm us. so oh. excited. All right, all right, all right. Well, anyway, folks, that'll do it for this episode and our uh, trauma bonding discussion of the room. Uh, thanks so much to everybody who continues to listen and interact with us. Please make sure you follow us on social media and uh, continue this conversation. And we're really excited next month to look at an old film with new eyes. Oh, 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 oh,